Ruth chapter 3. Ruth chapter 3. Uh, let, me, let me just read it. I'm going to start with reading it, and then I'll get into my notes. So Ruth chapter 3. Hopefully you've caught up to where we've been. If not, I'll review it in just a second, so you'll be good. But Ruth chapter 3. I'm going to read this week in the NRSV. So switching it up on you a little bit, but I think you'll be all right. Verse 1. Naomi, her mother-in-law, that's Ruth's mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, I need to seek some security for you so that it may be well with you. Now, here is our kinsman, Boaz, with whose young women you have been working. See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Now, wash and anoint yourself, put on your best clothes, and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. When he lies down, observe the place where he lies, then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. She said to her, all that you tell me, I will do. That's a big statement. We'll get back to it in a second, but just if you want to mark it or whatever. Verse 6. So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had instructed her. When Boaz had eaten and drank, he was in a contented mood. Uh, It's a polite way of saying it, I guess. And uh, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came stealthily. I love that that's in the Bible. That doesn't seem like a Bible word. But I read it this week and I was like, that's pretty cool. Then she came stealthily and uncovered his feet and lie down. Remember that? We'll get back to it. It's a lot more than you think. Verse 9. He said, who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your cloak over your servant, for you are next of kin. He said, may you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. This last instant of your loyalty is better than the first. You have not gone after young men, whether rich or poor. And now, my daughter, do not be afraid. I will do for you all that you ask. For all the assembly of my people know that you are a worthy woman. Verse 12. But now, though it is true I am a near kinsman, there is another kinsman more closely related than I. Remain this night and in the next morning, if he will act as next of kin for you, good, let him do it. If he is not willing to act as next of kin for you, then as the Lord lives, I will act as next of kin for you. Lie down until the morning. Last few verses. So she lay at his feet until morning, but got up before one person could recognize another, for he said, it must not be known that a woman came to the threshing floor. Then he said, bring your cloak you are wearing and hold it out. So she held it out and he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her back. Then he went into the city. She came to her mother-in-law who said, how did things go with you, my daughter? Then she told her all the man had done for her saying, he gave me these six measures of barley for he said, do not go back to your mother-in-law empty handed. She replied, wait my daughter until you learn how the matter turns out for the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. At surface level, this chapter kind of seems like a throwaway. I mean, it's important, but when you read through it, you're like, okay, we probably could have done We probably could have done without that chapter, you know? And so what I want you to do is I want you to see some things in this that's really important to the story. So let me review where we've been, and then I'll get into some of the notes for Ruth 3. So just to review, in Ruth 1, we see Naomi's husband and sons die in Moab after leaving Bethlehem due to famine. And we explored how Elimelech, her husband, her, her prior husband, could represent religion trying to make things happen by the work of your hand because you've lost trust in the Lord. 
and how her union with him could only produce things that were sick and destructive, which is what the names of her sons meant, Mahalon, Chilion. Them dying in Moab untethers her from that and opens her up to a new covenant partner, which is Ruth. Ruth's covenant with Naomi in Ruth chapter 1 is an unwavering, unconditional covenant. I mean, she says, where you die, I die. So this covenant will remain intact to the point of death. It's an unwavering, unconditional covenant. Okay? This points us, I believe, to our covenant partnership with Christ, who is joined to us unconditionally, who found us in the middle of the curse, Moab, and led us out back home. In Ruth 2, we explored how Naomi had no eyes to see the fact that she had multiple kinsmen redeemers that would redeem the family from where they had been because she had misinterpreted God's work for God turning away from her. God has turned away from me. I'm bitter. Don't call me Naomi anymore. She gets to the end of the chapter, and once she realizes, oh, wait a minute, Boaz, at the end, she says, surely the Lord has been faithful and never turned away from me. Huh? You know? So she had no eyes to see in the beginning of Ruth 2 what was actually there, which was a redeemer. And it was because she believed that God had turned his face from her when in reality, God was working every detail out for something she had no imagination for. But if she had just trusted that God is good and is working it out, she would have never made the decision to misinterpret God's work for God's just turned away from me. Okay? And I relate because I do that all the time, sometimes on a weekly basis. And maybe you guys are more holy than me. But that's what happens all the time. We're in the middle of God working and we're like, God, where are you? I'm right here. I'm working. You know, what are you doing? So, uh, so that's what we explored in Ruth 2. When Ruth happens upon in Ruth 2, the, Boaz, the field of Boaz, Naomi's bitterness turns to hope for redemption. Okay? She realizes God is working and will work actually out everything that he said he would do. But here in Ruth 3, this chapter seems odd to us modern readers and, like I said, somewhat insignificant. However, rest assured, there is a lot happening here. So I'm going to explain a little bit of what's been happening in Ruth 3, and then we'll get into how this fits into this, what we've been, pun intended, gleaning in Ruth 3. I'm a dad, so that's what we do. Okay, because Ruth gleaned. None of y'all, okay, praise God. None of y'all got it. Okay, that's all right. It's okay. So let me, let me point out a few things in this chapter to help you make sense of it a little bit more. Thanks to this. If you really want to look deep into Ruth, you need to get this commentary. Judy, Judy Fentress Williams, and it's Ruth. Um, it's, it's what it's called, and uh, it's been amazing. So a lot of this is insight that was helped by this commentary. So anyway, almost all of this chapter, point number one, is dialogue. If you notice this, it differs from a lot of the chapters around it because almost the entire chapter is conversation between people, whether it be Ruth and Naomi, Ruth and Boaz, and then Ruth and Naomi at the end. This chapter is critical to Ruth's new identity, thus Naomi's new identity. This chapter lies right in the middle of the marriage of Boaz and Ruth and Ruth happening upon Boaz's field. So this chapter, this encounter is the point on which Naomi and Ruth's identity shifts. 
Okay. Chapter two begins with Naomi making plans for their immediate needs. We need food. We talked about that last week. Chapter three that we just read begins with Naomi making plans for their long-term future. He said, she says, my daughter, I need to seek some security for you so that it may be well with you. In Ruth two, they're worried about what they're going to eat. In Ruth three, Naomi's looking ahead to how does this look long-term, okay? The changing of clothes in Ruth three, when she changes uh, clothes to go to the threshing floor, it evokes the memory of the story of Tamar and Judah in Genesis 38, if you want to go back and read this. And that's really interesting because Tamar's son, one of them, is named Perez, who is the son that Boaz himself comes from, from the line of. Genesis 38. When Naomi tells Ruth to put on clothes, it is the Hebrew word simlah. And this has multiple meanings, but it can mean a bed covering. And it evokes the possibility of what in Hebrew is known as a chupa or a marriage canopy. So Naomi's not just saying put on clothes. Naomi is saying put on a marriage canopy. It's big. One interesting and awkward thing about Ruth 3 is the uncovering of the feet. If you're watching this with kids, might want to put it on mute for a minute. Um, in Hebrew, this does not mean feet. Uh, in Hebrew, this is a euphemism for male private parts. Okay? So I told you it was a lot more interesting than what you thought. So she just to be awkward, she's not taking his socks off. Okay? And you thought the Bible was boring, you know? Like, man, this thing is boring. Open up Song of Songs. Um, there is a major connection here as well to the story of the origins of Moab itself. And I actually want to read this. This is uh, in page 90 of her commentary. So let me, let me read this to you. Everybody good? Awake? Okay, thank you. Everybody's asleep. Um, let, me, let me read this to you. Perhaps, she says, perhaps the confusion between the two women, uh, and she's going back and talking about uh, the different stories that this leads to, but I won't get into all that, um, is intended to remind the reader of another story that has similar structure, namely that of the origins of Ammon and Moab in Genesis 19. So the origins of Moab. The structure of that narrative recounts the Moabites' beginnings as the same way as Ruth 3 begins. The destruction of Sodom forces Lot to leave behind his land and his wife. This is in Genesis 19, if you want to go back. He and his daughters take refuge in the caves outside of Zoar. His daughters realize that their family line was threatened with extinction unless they did something. The daughters conspired to get their father drunk and conceived by him. Again, not a boring book. They are both successful, named their sons Moab, meaning from my father, and Ben-Ami, which means son of my people, which is where the Ammonites come from. In both texts, the following elements are present. First, there are two women conspiring to continue the family line. Second, there is one man presumably unsuspecting. This is making the connection to Ruth here. 
Third, there is drinking and darkness involved. Fourth, the central action occurs outside of the cities in liminal space. Fifth, there is an unnecessary, or excuse me, there is uncertainty around the identity of the woman and the time of their arrival and departure. Sixth, children come from these unions. The comparison of Ruth 3 to Genesis 19 has the potential to shed light on the role of Naomi in the passage. In Genesis 19, both daughters have relations with their father. This is not the case, however, in Ruth 3. Only the Moabite goes down to the threshing floor, but she does so for both women. They act as one, and the marriage of Ruth and Boaz is for the protection of both women. Now listen to this. The dialogue between these two stories revisits the tragic story of Genesis 19. The story of Ruth and Naomi's plan to secure the line via Boaz has the same structure, yet a different outcome. In this story, Moab finds a way back into Israel instead of being led out of it. Here, the Moabite becomes the ancestress to be revered instead of one relegated to shame. Because structural similarities are present and the Moabite line factors into both story, Harold Fish argues, who's another scholar, that the story of Ruth reaches back and redeems the story of Lot's daughter in the same way that Boaz's decision to marry Ruth redeems the line that would have died. So, what she's saying and what I want to point out for a moment, and I, again, I'm, I'm sort of talking around this, but I want you to see this here, that Scripture is a lot deeper than we ever thought. And in this story, there's all these different streams happening, and one of the streams is the Moabites who came from a cursed situation, which made them a cursed people, are now the cursed ones are now being brought back into the fold. I, I, I can't stress this enough. This is a, a very relevant message for us today. Very relevant. Because it's not just Gentile. Like, it's not just another group of non-Israelites coming in. Because the law allowed for that. The law had, a, um, had different parts of it that allowed for the inclusion of non-Jewish people. Okay? Into the fold. But we're not talking about just non-Jewish people. We're talking about Moabites. We're talking about the work for in, in the eyes of an Israelite, the worst of the worst that came from incest. You know what I'm saying? I mean, these are not people we want to be. And the author of Ruth is getting us to the place where we have to question the people that we have completely cut off from us God is bringing home. I, what? I mean, look, what does that challenge in us with how we view the gospel? And, and I, I said this Tuesday night, that does not mean Ruth did not serve Yahweh when Yahweh brought Ruth to Naomi. Because she says in Ruth 1 in the covenant, she says, your God will be my God, which is to say your God is not currently my God. However, when she joins to Naomi and comes home, she makes Yahweh her God. So when you, when you talk about the outsiders coming in on the inside, 
what we're not talking about is passive love. And we're not talking about doing this and being like, everything's cool. Y'all just do whatever and whatever. You know what I'm saying? What we're saying is, is there is an entry point for those that the church has placed on the outside to finally come home. And in coming home, there's also a realignment with who we are, which is your God will be my God. So you see this? So there's a balance that we have to, and we've, we've far outweighed the heavy your God will be my God part with the outsiders coming in. We've said, unless you do this and this and this and this and this and this and this, you can't even come in. And Yahweh's saying, you're coming in, and when you come in, then there's the invitation for your God to be my God. Okay, so, so this is what this is speaking of. It's a redemption of a cursed people, the gospel. So here's what I want to talk about today, specifically. This is what I want to speak to. How will we act in the face of uncertainty in our lives? How will we act in the face of uncertainty? And then number two, connected to this point, moving from friendship with God to the intimate encounter that will transform a nation is a willingness to risk it all for the one thing that matters. So how will we act in the face of uncertainty? And then how are we moving from friendship to a deep, intimate encounter that transforms a nation by way of risking it all in the face of uncertainty. Look at what, uh, let, me, let me read this to you real fast. Um, this is what Hebrews chapter 9, verses 11 through, and I should have marked it in my Bible so I don't have to sit here and flip, but everybody will be okay. This is Hebrews 9, and if, if you want to turn there just to read it with me, that would be amazing. So Hebrews 9, um, chapter 9, verses 11 through 28. Chapter 9, verses 11 through 28. Now, I want you to have the gospel in mind. I want you to have the story of Ruth in mind, and I want you to hear the connections that are made here. And I don't even know if they were on purpose. Of course, with the Holy Spirit, they're always on purpose, so I'm sure it was. But uh, verse 11, this is what it says. When Christ came as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy place, not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood, thus obtaining eternal redemption. What's the kinsman redeemer? Redemption of a line. For if the blood of goats and bulls with the sprinkling of the ashes of a heifer sanctifies those who have been defiled so that their flesh is purified, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to worship of God? Last couple of parts. For this reason, he is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance because a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions under the first covenant. Where a will is involved, the death of the one, this is one of my favorite parts of Hebrews, where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. In other words, for a will to be enacted, somebody's got to die. Okay? For a will takes effect only at death. 
since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Hence, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment had been told to all the people by Moses in accordance with the law, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the scroll itself and the people saying, this is the blood of the covenant that God has ordained for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled the blood, both the tent, all the vessels in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. 23. Thus, it was necessary for the sketches of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves need better sacrifices than these. I love that. Can I just point this out for a second? It was necessary for the sketches of heavenly things. What a beautiful way of talking about what's happening in the Old Covenant. It was a sketch. When you look at a sketch of something, you see kind of what it is, but then when you see the real thing, you see stuff you didn't see in sketches. Okay, that's amazing. So just wanna point that out, 24. For Christ did not enter a sanctuary made by human hands, a mere copy of the true one, but he entered into heaven itself. Now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf, Hello, Ruth. Nor was it to offer himself again and again as the high priest enters the holy place year after year with the blood that is not his own. For then he would have to suffer again and again since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once and for all at the end of the age to remove sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for mortals to die once and after that judgment, so Christ having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Mm, man, 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 man. I shouldn't have read that because now I want to preach on that. That's good. So you see, Christ entered into the most holy place to do something on behalf of a group of people that did not enter on their own. Likewise, Naomi is entering into this threshing floor, and I'm going to explain the threshing floor in a moment. She's entering into the threshing floor, not just for herself, but on behalf of another. Okay, so let me, let me read a little bit of my notes here. I've taught Ruth in multiple different ways throughout the years, all of which work, which is beautiful about this book. I've taught, for example, that Christ is Boaz, the kinsman redeemer. I've taught that we are Boaz, that which redeems the land through covenant. But today, in keeping with the stream that we've been in, I want us to remain in a place of relating to Naomi and Ruth relating to Christ and Boaz relating now to the Father. This is the beautiful thing about Scripture. It's alive and active. It's, it's finding us where we are and reading us with it. You know, I said week one, we don't read the Bible. The Bible reads us. Where, wherever you are in life is where the Holy Spirit will meet you and push you into the story, depending on what stream you find yourself in today. This is the amazing thing about Scripture. So today, I want us to remain in a place of relating to Naomi. Here in Ruth, Ruth is not acting alone. She's acting on behalf of Naomi. What happens to Ruth will happen to Naomi. 
A kinsman redeemer for the family is crucial for, not Ruth, Naomi. Remember, Ruth did not have to come back to Bethlehem. Naomi says, go home. And just like Orpah, she could have gone home. She didn't have to come back to Bethlehem. Naomi, however, only has Ruth. Theoretically, Ruth can go, Ruth can go home at any point, except she made a covenant that's binding. But in our day and age, words are cheap. So for us, you can make it a covenant all day long, and then two days later, you're out. That's what we do, especially in the church. It's a lot. So, but you know what I mean? But in this day and age, she's bound by the words that she spoke. But theoretically, at any point, she can go home. Naomi only has Ruth. She only got Ruth. Ruth is acting on her behalf. Likewise, Christ became flesh, and that is Christ acting on behalf of mankind. Christ, apart from God's covenant with us, could also theoretically go home whenever he wanted. Instead, he chose to remain and act on our behalf, and as Hebrews 19.12 says, Enter once and for all into the holy place, not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood, thus obtaining eternal redemption. He does it for us. So she goes, Ruth, to the threshing floor to meet Boaz. This is risky. Of course, risky is relative because within the plan of God, it was not risky at all. But speaking in purely human terms... This is very risky what she's doing. The entire survival of the family rests on this encounter going right. Similarly, when Christ died, the veil is torn to the most holy place and suddenly the most holy place was every place. It was risky in human terms, but it was the only way, Hebrews says, to secure redemption for the family line. Likewise, in the face of uncertainty, Jesus chooses to act in complete trust. Remember this, this is what he says in Matthew 26, 39. My father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Yet, not what I want, but what you want. So even Christ himself becoming the totality of who we are in a moment of uncertainty, prays to the Father, if there's a way, let it pass. However, no matter what it looks like, no matter what the pain is, no matter what I have to go through, it's not what I want, it's what you want. What you do, or let me ask you this question, what do you do? when you face uncertainty and seeming risk? Do you trust in the Lord and go where you do not know the outcome of, but you know is where the Lord is leading you to, or do you retreat to what you know and control? This keeps so many Christians in places of being stuck and ultimately being apathetic. This is really what's happening to so many of our family members and friends, if we're being honest. 
they stopped, if they ever started, saying yes to what we define as risk. And again, it's not risk to the Lord, but what we define as risk. They stopped saying yes to it, and they stopped saying yes to trust, and instead they stopped in what was safe, and by remaining in what is safe, suddenly they found themselves in this never-ending cycle of being stuck. Unfortunately, a lot of churches get in this cycle. And when you get stuck, suddenly you stop caring. You become apathetic. God invited all of us to give birth spiritually to kings and queens, but we never did Because in order to do that, it required going down to the threshing floor where you risk everything that you've known for one intimate encounter. Here's the irony. Ruth is sent by Naomi to secure security. Here's the irony. Much of what we think is safe and secure is not safe and secure at all. The only true security is a constant trust in the Lord, even if in our purely human perspective, it seems risky. Risk, if you're writing notes down, this is your note, here we go. Risk, if it is in trust in the Lord, is true security. Security, if it is apart from a yes to the Lord, is the true risk. Risk, if it is within trust in the Lord, is actually the only true security. Security, which is what we all want in life, if it is attained apart from a yes and trust to the Lord, is actually the real risk. Now, what is the threshing floor where this takes place? This is my favorite part. The threshing floor is a flat surface, usually smooth, which is used during the harvest of grains. This space was used before equipment and machinery was invented that we have today. It was used to separate the grains from the chaff by manual separation. Usually, the animals crush and break the sheaves of the grains on the threshing floor, or people manually use sticks to break the sheaves apart. As a result, the grains would be separated from the husks. Husks. The final separation would be done by, see if this sounds familiar, by tossing the grain into the air upon the wind, thereby finally separating those still with husk with those already edible. This process is called winnowing. Now, this sounds familiar because this is what John the Baptist says in Matthew 3, 12. I baptize you with water for repentance, but one who is more powerful than I is coming. I'm not worthy to carry his sandals. He will baptize you with the holy wind, spirit, and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand. He will clear his threshing floor. He will gather his wheat into the granary, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. That's what we used to say in Pentecostal church, you know, because it sounded better, right? So we always used to say, see, he's separating the people. 
Unquenchable fire, hell, obviously. And right, you know, obviously, right. From you know, I'm gonna save it. I'm gonna save it. But but this is not just to be clear. This isn't speaking to, and there might be other passages that do speak to this. But this passage passage in particular is not speaking to a separation of people. We've gotten this so wrong. This is much deeper than that. It's a separation of what is needed and what is not in every person. This is what this is. The the wheat and the chaff are from the same stalk. The chaff is needed for the wheat to properly grow. But there comes a time when it is no longer needed and when it isn't needed anymore, it needs to be separated from the wheat so that the wheat can become all that it's supposed to be. And when John speaks to this being burned in an unquenchable fire, an unquenchable fire removes the possibility of you going and getting it again. Do you see this? So he's saying, I baptize you in water, but when the Holy Spirit is baptized or when you're baptized in the Holy Spirit and in the fire of the passion of God, when that takes place, there's going to be a removal within you of the stuff that is no longer needed, primarily the law. Okay? And then there's going to be a gathering within you of what is needed, which is your true identity self in covenant with God, primarily seen in Christ, who was both God and man. And when that happens, he's going to gather all the stuff that is no longer needed, and he's going to burn that in a fire that is impossible for you to go and retrieve something out of. It's a lot bigger than he's going to separate people. God, help us. You know what I'm saying? This this is a lot deeper than what we think. This is, and see, when we say it like that, we like, well, see, we're the wheat. You're absolutely right. You are the wheat. And you also are the chaff. And he's coming with his winnowing fork to make sure you become everything that you're supposed to be. This encounter with Boaz happens, ironically, at the place where threshing takes place, the threshing floor. The place where the encounter you were made for, the encounter that Jesus entered into on our behalf and before us, happens where the Holy Spirit will begin to remove what is no longer needed so that the purity of what is needed can become all that it's made to be unhindered. And this is risky because it will cost you some of the things that you've grown up with, literally. The wheat grew up with the chaff. The wheat is comfortable with the chaff. In fact, for a season, the wheat was protected by the chaff. For a season, the the wheat could not grow without the chaff. So to go to the threshing floor is very risky because it's going to require a removal of things from you that you are comfortable with that maybe you grew up with. But once you walk into the place of the wind, the threshing floor, you become the full expression of who you really are. And there, from that place, you receive access to the encounter 
that really you've been longing for your whole life and the encounter that will ultimately change your name. She ain't the Ruth the Moabite anymore. She's Ruth, wife of Boaz. If you didn't believe that, listen to this. Ruth leaves the threshing floor with a really odd number of measures of barley. Six. Why not five? Why not ten? Why not one? Six. You know? I mean, how many of us, when we say, you know, hey, let's, you know, we get, get a group text going. Let's all meet for dinner tonight at 6.06. You know, it's just an odd, you know what I'm saying? It's a really odd number. Unless you realize what six is saying here. Six is the number of man. Ruth went into the threshing floor. I want you to, I want you to hear this. Ruth went into the threshing floor on behalf of Naomi and left the threshing floor encounter carrying six measures of barley in her hands. Christ went into the threshing floor, the cross, as Adam and left that encounter carrying mankind. Okay. Y'all didn't get it. Christ, like Ruth, goes into the threshing as Adam and leaves carrying mankind out. This is the gospel. Redemption of one, Adam, becomes redemption of a family line, which becomes redemption for a nation, which becomes redemption for the cosmos. This is the story of Ruth. It begins with Ruth for Naomi, and that encounter becomes... David, beloved, which is the redemption of Israel, and the redemption of Israel, a nation, ultimately becomes the redemption of the creation through Jesus. This is how it happens. Same with us. Christ goes to the cross in Romans 5, we see, as the last Adam, as Adam. He goes to the cross as Adam, and when he leaves he leaves carrying out the redemption of Adam's family line, which is you and I. And the redemption of Adam's family line becomes the redemption, if we'll see it correctly, of a nation. And the redemption of a nation ultimately becomes the redemption of the creation, the cosmos. And right now, we're kind of right there in the middle of it, where we have been, if you'll see this pattern over the past two years, realizing two years ago in May, we started to walk through what Jesus actually did through the cross, death, burial, resurrection, ascension. Okay? And as we've realized that, suddenly we've realized the redemption of a family line, which is us. And as we are realizing the redemption of a family line, now we're in the place where the, the transition is going to take place from the family line being redeemed to that leading to the birth of beloved identity, which redeems a nation. And we're right here. We're right in between. 
And the question is, what are we missing out on? What is our family line missing out on? What is our land missing out on? And what is the creation missing out on that is only a decision to risk in trust away from you and I? What do you need to say yes to that is risky that you've been afraid to say yes to because you've become comfortable with the way things are. And I'm not talking about life changes. I'm not talking about jobs. I'm not talking about you need to move. I'm not ta- that's not what I'm talking about, okay? I mean, sure, whatever, that, you know, that could be. I'm, I'm really speaking to spiritual changes. I'm speaking to the reality within. What is it within that we have yet to say yes to because we're comfortable with how things are that if we would just say yes to the things the Lord is pushing us to say yes to, it'll require stuff of us. Maybe that'll require all the stuff that we've been comfortable with growing up in religion. Maybe it will require of us to lay down things that we have become so accustomed to finding our identity and security in. And because of that, it's going to allow us to break through this glass ceiling we've placed over our lives into the encounter that if we're being honest, all of us have been praying for. Whether or not you've blatantly been praying for it or whether or not it's been subconscious, you're here not because, like I said earlier, not because we have the best music, though I believe we do have good music, okay? Not because we have the best preaching, though I would hope it's okay. Certainly not because we have the best programs. It's not because we have the best coffee. It's not because we have the best gifts for first-timers. It's not because I'm cool. <laughs> you know? You're, and you might not even know this. You might think you're here just because you stumbled upon our church. I Googled it. You didn't Google it. The Lord might have used Google to get you to a place, but it wasn't Google. You are here today because whether or not you know it, there's something in you that says there is more. There has to be more. That's why you're here. Even I love the fact that we have such a tight knit group of people. Like you come in, you feel like family immediately, hopefully. But but even that is a secondary consequence of the reason all of us are here. I'm here because I dare to believe there's more than anything we ever imagined. There's got to be more than Sunday to Sunday to Sunday to Sunday to Sunday to Sunday. That God has to be more than interested in me when I beg and plead and cry and do all the right things. So, so what do we, Matt, you can hop up here. What do we need to say yes to? within that is going to not just transform our lives, it's going to ultimately begin to be the transformation of the cosmos. This, what does Romans 8 say? It says that all of the cosmos, all of creation, is standing on tiptoe waiting for you to be manifest. And I hate using the word manifest even though it's in Scripture because that's become such a, such a thing, you know, I want to manifest. Like, what is that? Y'all don't know what that means. What does that mean? You know, I want to manifest this. I, no, you don't. So um, you're manifesting something. Ain't what you think. So, but you know what I mean? But what that means, all of creation is standing on tiptoe, yearning for you and I 
to simply become what we are, sons and daughters of God. Paul literally says the salvation of the cosmos was initiated by Jesus and the way that salvation is seen through to redemption and totality is simply, not by us doing anything. Paul says in Romans 8, it's simply by us becoming the full expression of just what we are. That's enough to change the cosmos. We, we in the South, and y'all know this, have a problem with accessory Christianity. That is, Christianity is just an accessory to our lives. We wear it when we want. We wear it when we're free. We leave it in our jewelry case when we got other stuff going on. That this is the South. You go down, leave, leave today, go walk down Main Street, ask every person you see if they're a Christian. I promise you at over 90% of them will say, absolutely. Then if you ask them, when's the last time you've been at church? I promise you 90% of them hasn't, haven't been in a really long time. And if you, well, your church attendance doesn't, no, you're, but you being a part of a church is a fruit of the tree that you are. Do you see what I'm saying? So how, how are you going to be follow, you know, how are you going to be in this Christianity thing, following Jesus in the family and yet never want to be in the family? See, there's just like some, that doesn't fit. Okay. So what I'm saying is we, we have this thing that we've grown into where everybody's Christian and yet nothing looks any different. This life with God is just that, it's life. It requires us to take our life and our time and our decisions and our money and our dreams and our goals and all of it, take it to the threshing floor and trade them for an encounter that will cause us to be who we really are and who we have been from the foundations of the earth that all of creation's waiting for. All that requires of us is to take our life and our time and our dreams and our hopes and our money and our resources and all of that stuff and take it into the threshing floor and toss it in the wind. And what is gathered remain and what is thrown into the fire thrown. And at that point, when you make it to that place, none of it matters. It doesn't matter what remains or what he takes because you've gotten the prize, which is Bo which is Jesus, which is Boaz, which is the kinsman redeemer. You've gotten the prize when you make it in that place. And I wanna see this because Naomi did nothing in the story to be redeemed. Naomi didn't go to the threshing floor, but Naomi had to get in such a place of covenant with Ruth that when Ruth went to the threshing floor on her behalf, it was the equivalent of Naomi being at the threshing floor. So it's not an issue of us working our way through to Boaz. It's simply an issue of us joining ourselves to the one that Hebrews 9 says has already entered the most holy place by his own blood. I mean, so this is the beauty of the gospel is it costs you everything. At the same time, all it requires is a yes. It's this dichotomy that we look, it requires everything of you. And yet it requires you to do nothing but say yes to the one that has done it all for you. 
So, so me, me and my wife, when we got married, we um, obviously, hopefully, um, by saying yes to each other, simultaneously said no to every other possibility of who we could be joined to. So rather than me having to live with a constant fear of who I have to say no to, my yes to my wife has become its own no to everything else. So it makes my no effortless because of the commitment I have to my yes. Naomi doesn't go to the, Naomi does absolutely nothing. And yet at the end of the story, Naomi is bouncing Obed on her knee. I mean, so that when we say one thing on a weekly basis, thousands of times a week, when we say it's one thing, it's one thing, it's one thing. It's one thing that affects everything. And so you begin to look at your life and if everything isn't being affected by the one thing, we haven't given an adequate yes to the one thing. But when everything begins to be affected by that, suddenly you begin to give birth to things you couldn't give birth to when you were married to a limelight. And I wanna reiterate this and then we can bow our heads and pray. Actually, go ahead and bow your heads. I'll pray this over you. But I, as, your, as your heads are bowed, eyes are closed, all that stuff, I, I want to um, reiterate something to those of you that are, that are in this. Ruth went into this, Naomi sent Ruth into this encounter. She went into it not knowing the outcome. So you don't have to know what the outcome of your yes is to get it. You simply have to trust in the goodness of the kinsman redeemer enough to risk it all knowing that it will turn out for your favor. So you don't have to know how this is gonna work and how this is gonna work and how this is gonna happen and what do I do about this? And how do, if I'm not worried about this, how is it gonna happen? If I don't lay down and rest at night without worrying about what's happening tomorrow, is it all gonna fall apart? Et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. How, how am I gonna, man, I can't, afford, I can't afford to trust God with my money. I can't even afford to pay my bills. You, know, you, don't, you don't have to know how this plays out all God is asking for is a yes. And then he tells you in Malachi, he says, if you'll test me, I'll prove it to you. And in Malachi, he's talking about tithe, but he's talking really about something deeper because before he speaks to this, he speaks about the corruption of the people of Israel from a heart level. So the tithe was just a fruit of what was going on within. And when Malachi speaks to this, what he's saying is, God is saying, you have forgotten but if you will come back to me and test me, let me prove to you that I am who I say I am and I will do what I said I will do. Test me and see if I won't do it. And I wanna encourage you today, when the Lord calls you to the threshing floor like he is right now as a church, this is our last Sunday in this place before we move to a new season. He's calling us back to the threshing floor saying, Holy Spirit, remove everything Whatever peace is no longer valuable to us, whatever peace
peace is no longer needed, whatever peace that we've been holding on to that is no longer worth us holding on to it, Holy Spirit, remove it and don't just remove it. Burn it in in an unquenchable fire of the passion and love of God that is so hot, that is so consuming that we cannot go and retrieve it again even if we won't. And I pray that as this happens, because what we're about to see in Ruth 4 next week, what we're about to see is that one decision to go to the threshing floor. That one decision is going to be the salvation of the earth. If you open up the book of Matthew and you read the lineage of Jesus, right in the dead center of it, is Ruth. She had no idea that risking it all for that one encounter, Naomi had no idea that sending Ruth to risk it all for that one encounter, she had no idea the impact to the cosmos that that would have. She was just being faithful. And I want to ask you today, what are these little yeses that we've defined as little yeses that could be the redemption of not just a nation, but of the creation. I mean, we see this all throughout. Martin Luther had no clue nailing the 99 theses to the Catholic church door in Wittenberg, had no clue that that was significant. And here we are 500 years later, a product of that one yes. So God, I thank you for opportunities to say yes to you in the night when we don't trust you enough, but we trust you to say yes in spite of what we don't understand or don't know. And God, I want to I want to thank you as we're praying. I want to thank you for the faithfulness that you've shown us. I want to thank you for the faithfulness you've shown me over the past five and a half years in this building. Lord, we've been through stuff that most of you guys weren't with us to go through. But we, we have been through some stuff in here. Mostly amazing things. A lot of things that tested me as well. And God's been faithful along the way. I can only imagine what we're about to step into in this next season. So we thank you in advance for it. We honor you today in your name. Amen.